But let's just jump right into it right here. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor call encouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. It starts out so simply, but so beautifully here in Isaiah chapter 42, where in the first line, Isaiah the prophet calls out to Israel and to Judah and calls upon them to behold my servant. Matter of fact, the call goes out broader than just the people of God, the whole earth. The Lord says, behold my servant. The Lord calls to all people, the people of Israel and the coastlands, and he tells them to do something. Do you see what he tells you to do in verse 1? It isn't just any servant in general. Very specifically, it's speaking of the servant of Jesus Christ. Now, believe me, this is is completely merited in the Scriptures in in a very beautiful passage. And why don't we just take a a look there, if you want to keep your finger here in Isaiah chapter 42, and turn over to uh, uh, Matthew chapter 12, you'll see that this passage of Scripture is very pointedly quoted in reference to Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, beginning here at verse 16. Well, I don't know. Let's start at verse 15 there. I always like to get a running start where it says, uh, again, this is Matthew 12, 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. And he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will trust. This beautiful quotation of this verse. Matthew, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew that Isaiah was speaking about not just any servant of God, but very specifically the servant of God, Jesus Christ. Isn't it wonderful for us to consider that Jesus so often described himself as a servant? How about Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, where he says, Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. It's beautiful. Jesus expressing the heart, the nature, the calling of a servant. All too few people today want to be servants. Many are willing to serve for a reward, for a notoriety, for an attention, for an acclaim. Not Jesus. Jesus simply said, let me be a servant. The Lord says, look at Jesus as a servant. Jesus Christ is, is a servant. He's our example as a servant. He says, serve as I've served. Jesus comes before you and I and he says, I came not to be served, but to serve. Isn't that a marvelous calling for any other one of us? Now, as I look out upon you here this evening, I know something about every life here. Every life here has a need tonight. Every life here tonight could use some service. You could use someone to serve you tonight. I don't doubt that at all. 
You need somebody to help you out. Yeah, there's something in your life that somebody could serve you in and bless you in. Can I tell you just for a moment, forget about that thing that you need somebody to serve you in. Why don't you think about how you can be a servant to somebody else? And you know what the glorious, glorious thing is? Is God will so beautifully meet your need to be served as you come not to be served, but to serve someone else. Now, when you go around waiting for other people to serve you, it's like the dog chasing his tail, isn't it? Oh, you want it so bad, you need it so bad, and you're so afraid you can't figure out why it's not happening. But when you take that heart of Jesus that just simply says, hey, I haven't come to be served, but to serve. What a glorious, glorious transformation takes place. But can I tell you something precious about the ministry of Jesus Christ as a servant? It's not just that Jesus the servant is an example to us as a servant. I mean, that's wonderful enough, isn't it? Friends, it goes even more than that. Jesus isn't just an example of a servant. He is our servant. He serves us today. Now, my say it's wrong for us to go around regarding Jesus as our servant, right? Treating him as our servant. You know, having that mindset that Jesus is servant and we are his master. And he's, but can I tell you that Jesus, even enthroned in heaven today, has the heart of a servant towards you. Every day, every moment of the day, he extends towards you constant love, constant care, constant guidance, constant intercession. Jesus has served you today. He's prayed for you today in heaven. Do you realize that? You say, I don't know. I don't know if Jesus was praying for me. You don't know the day I had today. You say, well, you don't know how much worse it could have been if Jesus wasn't praying for you today. Jesus prayed for you today. He's loving you today. Jesus didn't stop serving when he went to heaven. Do you realize that Jesus serves all his people more effectively than ever from heaven? Do you know why Jesus went to heaven and didn't stay here on this earth in his resurrected body? Because he wanted to serve his people more effectively. If Jesus stayed on this earth in his resurrection body, then he could only be at one place at one time. But from heaven, he can serve all his people more effectively. It was the servant-loving heart of Jesus that sent him to heaven to serve his people better than ever from there. He's a servant. Look at him. Behold him. Verse 1, behold my servant. Then see the rest of it there in the first part of verse 1. My servant whom I uphold. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a precious promise for God's servants? It's certainly true for Jesus. The Lord God upheld him. Jesus went out and, and to, to serve his people, and the Lord upheld him. God will uphold you as you seek to be his servant and the servant of others. He promises to uphold his servants. And think of somebody who's a slave or who's a, a butler or a live-in maid or somebody with somebody. And, and, and here you are, you're somebody's slave. And your job, your purpose, your mission in life is to serve your master, isn't it? I mean, that's just what you do. You don't wake up in the morning and think, well, what am I going to do today? You wake up in the morning thinking, what does my master want me to do today? That's how God wants us to live, his servants. Now, here's the corollary of that, though. The master has responsibility to take care of you, doesn't he? I mean, you give over everything in your life to him, right? You, you obsess your life with serving him and pleasing him and establishing his agenda. That's your job. And what's the master's job? To take care of you. You don't have to think about your next meal, right? The master's thinking about it, and he's going to provide it for you. 
You don't have to think about the roof over your head. It's his job. He's the master. You're the servant. So you just think about the master and pleasing him. And what's his promise to you? Whom I will uphold. He'll uphold you. Now, there may also be another sense in this. Alan Redpath, in his commentary on Isaiah, believes this speaks of the father's trust in and dependence upon the son. Let me read you a section of this. He says that the picture is taken from an eastern royal court where a monarch is in a procession, and as he walks, he leans upon a favorite courtier. This verse, in fact, could well be translated, Behold my servant upon whom I lean. It's an indication of special favor and confidence. So we have this picture of God the Father leaning upon God the Son, counting upon him and trusting him to fulfill all his purposes. You know, the the master has to trust the servant, doesn't he? He has to lean upon the servant. And that may be the idea as well. It may be a double idea, right? The, the, The son can lean upon the father and trust him to uphold him, and the father can lean upon the son and trust him to uphold him. Isn't that how it should be? The servant does his job and it upholds the master. The master does his job and it upholds the servant. It's a beautiful arrangement. Except when the servant starts thinking and acting like a master. That messes everything up, doesn't it? Friends, that's the difficulty we find ourselves in. I like the way Alan Redpath explained it. It makes me wonder if God can lean on us. If God can depend upon us. And friends, I, I know we can depend upon the Lord. There's no question about that, right? Can God depend upon us? Can he speak to our heart about going deeper into something? About moving on into falling into a new sense of mission or obedience or calling? And he depend upon us to respond in faith to what he's calling us to do. You know, he does this because he loves us. If you notice this here, it goes on in verse 1. He says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. Jesus is the ultimate elect one. And do you know what elect means? When you have an election, what are people doing? They're choosing. To be elect means that you're chosen. Elect means chosen. God is talking about someone whom he chose. And our election is really a matter of being chosen in Jesus Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He says that God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. Right? Jesus, you know Jesus has a special place in the heart of God the Father, right? There's no doubt about that. Well, if you're in Jesus, then you have a special place in him. That's the simplicity of the Christian life. Friends, you're in Jesus. Jesus Christ is in you. If Jesus has a special place before the favor and the honor of God, so do you. That's why it says there, notice verse 1, my elect one in whom my soul delights. You know, for the Lord, election is not a cold, calculating, technical thing. It's not as if God sits in eternity past and rolls some dice and says, well, this one's elect and this one's not. You know, it flips a coin. That's my election. No! God's election is deeply connected with his love and approval. When God chooses someone, his soul delights in them. Are you chosen of God tonight? And God's soul delights in you. No, no, no way, you think. No, God is annoyed with me. See, I I didn't read my Bible. 
every day this week. God's annoyed with me. Well, I'm sorry you didn't read your Bible. You, you, you'd know more of the heart of the Lord. You'd know more how much he loves you if you read your Bible. But the Lord's not annoyed with you. His soul delights in you. No, wait a minute. No, you don't know me. And you try to give me all these reasons why the Lord's soul does not delight in you. You know what? I'd agree with them all. I'd say, yeah, you know what? And if I was the Lord, I would be annoyed with you. But the point of it is, I'm not the Lord. You say, well, I don't get it. Then why? Why does his soul delight in me? Because you're in his son. You see, it's not about you. It's about where you're at. It's not what you know. It's not what you do. It's who you know. It's who you're in. And that's the Son, Jesus Christ. If you are chosen in Jesus before the foundation of the world, then God says, my soul delights in you. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is where I get confused. I don't know if I'm chosen. How do I know if I'm chosen? Well, you know, God didn't go around and put like a big, you know, black dot on the foreheads of the chosen. He didn't do that. So you know what he did? He gave us a way that we can know the chosen. The chosen of God, choose him. You say, well, I don't know. Then how do I know if I'm a chosen? Well, choose him. Give your life to Jesus Christ, then we'll know that you're chosen. Well, no, I don't get it. You know, I mean, maybe I'm not chosen. Then maybe I can't. No, forget about that. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and you'll be one of his chosen. That's pretty simple, right? Everybody here tonight, you can know that you're one of the chosen of the Lord. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've believed on the Son of God and entrusted him with your life now and into eternity, you're chosen. And the Lord looks at you tonight and he says, my soul delights in you. You see that? Can you see the expression on God's face as he looks at you tonight, and his soul is filled with delight in you. You ever seen a parent so just delighting in their child? You know, they, they look at him, and maybe the child's just learning how to walk. And I mean, it's like, oh, man. It's a, the parent, there's just a grin. There's a radiance on the parent's face. They're so happy. They're so, this is their little child. Oh, they just love their child so much. You could just see it oozing out of them. My friends, if you could see the expression on God's face towards you tonight, that's what it would look like. Say, no, no, I don't deserve it. You're right. You don't deserve it. That's not the issue. It's because you're in Jesus Christ. His soul delights in you. Now, what's more, look at what else it says about Jesus here in verse 1. It says, I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And the ministry of Jesus, empowered by the spirit, went far beyond the Jewish people. He'd also have a ministry to the Gentiles, bringing justice and righteousness to them. But look at the character of the ministry here in verse 2. He says, he will not cry out nor raise his voice. Now, please, don't think that this meant that Jesus never spoke loudly. What it means is it refers to his gentle, lowly heart and his actions. Jesus didn't make his way by bluster and loud, overwhelming talk, but by the Spirit of God upon him. You know, if Jesus were to come to the earth today, he wouldn't have a slick marketing program. He wouldn't have persuasive television commercials. He wouldn't do all those things because his ministry, as he came in his first coming, was to not cry out nor raise his voice. The, the first idea where it says, cry out, the idea there is of a shout. That suggests that Jesus was not there to startle. 
It says he would not uh, cry out nor raise his voice. That, that suggests that he wouldn't dominate or, or shout others down. And then finally, where it says, uh, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street, that, that means he wouldn't advertise himself. Jesus went about humbly. You know, Jesus was very modest in that way. wasn't filled with the spirit of self-promotion. You know, look at me, look at me. Aren't I great? God's man of faith and power for this generation. Healed somebody. And what did he say? Don't tell anybody. Time's not right yet. Don't say anybody. Boy, isn't that more? What a change that is, isn't it? Not filled with this attitude, self-promotion. People would look at Jesus and go, Jesus, Jesus, you know, with the right marketing team behind you, you could really be something, mister. Come on, pull your head up out of the sand. What are you thinking? He says, no, no, I know. And I have to read you a quote here from Alan Redpath. He says, think for a moment about the modesty of God. He's always at work. He guides the sun, the stars, and the universe. He controls every galaxy. He refreshes the earth constantly. But he works so quietly that many people now try to make out that there is no God at all. That is the hallmark of reality and service. God's artists do not put their signatures to the pictures they create. His ambassadors do not run after the photographer all the time to get their pictures taken. It is enough that they've borne witness to the Lord. That's how Jesus felt. He didn't need to have his name in the newspaper. He was serving the Lord. He knew that he had the name in the newspaper in heaven. Oh, that I wish we could see the newspaper, the, the news report in heaven every day. What a difference that would make. You know, the things that make the headline here, both in the secular world and much of the church world, Believe me, that's, that's, that's like in the classifieds in heaven, even if it makes any notice at all. Oh, the headline news in, in, you know, praying grandmother continues streak of uninterrupted daily prayer. You know, that, that's headline news in heaven. Wow. Not a person on earth saw it on earth. Oh, but it's headline news in heaven. No, that we'd live for that. Then he goes on, oh, this is so glorious. Look at more the character of the ministry of the Messiah here, verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. This is another reference to the gentle character of Jesus. You know what a reed is? It's, it's one of those plants that grows up, and it's kind of hollow, right? And you can cut it and make like a flute or a little pipe out of it, you know, and just, you know, use it to make music. It's really not good for much more than that. It's a fairly fragile plant, isn't it? And here's the picture of a reed, and it's bruised. You know, like that stalk of a flower that's kind of bruised and wilting. And man, it's almost broken. I mean, it's, it's, it's damaged. It's that. But the servant, Jesus, is so gentle that a bruised reed, he handles it so gently that it won't break. And flax. You know, you could use flax as tinder to start a fire, you know, and then blow on it. But you could also use it as a wick. That's probably the reference of it here. As a wick in an oil lamp. And there's no oil in it, right? So what happens to the wick in the oil lamp when there's no oil? Well, the wick itself starts to burn, right? It starts to smolder, to smoke. The, the flax isn't very good for burning itself. It's smoking because there's no oil and it. It's just smoldering. It's no good. Well, instead of quenching it, what does the servant do? He gently blows on the smoking flax. He, 
He pours oil into the lamp so that it has fuel to burn on. And he fans it into flame again. And so oftentimes we feel that God deals roughly with our weaknesses and failures. Did you know that just the opposite is true? You feel weak, failing before God tonight. Maybe you feel bruised. You're not shining for God. You're just smoldering. And it's not even very pretty. It kind of stinks. You know, things that are smoldering. Funny smell. Nothing good about it. No light shining forth from it. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel terribly guilty about your Christian life right now. You know, you, it's not like you've denied the Lord, but you don't really feel like you're serving him either. The Lord comes along you tonight, and he says, hey, you're a bruised reed. I'm not going to break you. I'm going to strengthen you. You're smoking flax. I'm not going to extinguish you. I'm going to fan you into flame. How many people, they're like that bruised reed. They've been crushed or hurt by unkindness. Their life's been bent or shattered. There's no strength. There's no beauty in it. There's nothing attractive about a reed, especially one that's bruised. You know where reeds grow? Smelly, swamps, wet, good for nothing. You feel like that bruised reed. Lord wants to strengthen you tonight. Or maybe you feel like you're that smoking flax. Your light isn't shining at all. There's more smoke than fire. Not much prayer, not much testimony. There's a lot of depression and discouragement. Lord says he's not going to extinguish that. He loves you. He's tender to you tonight. He wants to bless you. He's not dismissive of the weak, of the struggling. You know, a lot of times in our Christianity, we can seem so triumphant, you know, so powerful. So, yeah, yeah, you know, that's it. Some poor, weak brother or sister, they just feel like they're small. They feel like they're left behind. There they are, all the ones who really love the Lord. They're marching on. They're going forth. Look at me. You know, the Lord Jesus, he goes to the back of the, of the procession, right? And he looks at those weak ones, the lame ones, the infirm ones, and they're almost cowering before him. They're expecting to be punished. They're expecting to be whipped. He comes along and he says, let me strengthen you. Let me bless you. You're a weak child, but you're still my child. You're smoldering. I want to fan it into flame. You're bruised. I want to strengthen it. I want to heal it. You know, Jesus can see the value in a bruised reed. Nobody else can. They say, throw it away. There's a million reeds out there. Who cares? Jesus looks and says, no, I'll take that bruised reed. I'll strengthen it from within. I'll make beautiful music to come out from that reed again. He looks at that smoldering, smoking flax. Yeah, at one time it burned brightly. It was the wick on an oil lamp, right? All the oil's gone now. And it's just smoldering. It's burning. It's no good anymore. What does Jesus do? Jesus said, I'm going to refresh that with oil. I'm going to pour the oil of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to refresh that. I'm going to fan it into flame again. You need to be drenched with that oil of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what the Lord wants to do for you here. Now, can I say this? That not only does the Lord want to minister to you tonight, you bruised reed, you smoking flax, he wants to deal with you tenderly and gently, but he wants us to have his heart towards the lowly, towards the broken, and towards the hurting. It's easy to pass them by, isn't it? Oh, they don't have their act together. I'll work with the easy people. I'll work with the people who are burning strong. 
I'll work with the people who aren't bruised. It's just like the priest and the Levite who passed the beaten man on the road to Jericho, right? Oh, friends. Again, Redpath, he says, the superficial Christian work and ignores that kind of situation. He wants a sphere to serve where it'll be worthy of his talent, if you please. A task where his abilities will be recognized and used. Something that is big enough to justify all the training he's undergone. In the eyes of the Lord, the test of real service is, does he bend with the humility of Jesus Christ over a bruised reed and smoking flax? Maybe tonight you're not the bruised reed. Maybe you're not the smoking flax. God wants to give you a heart for those believers who are in that place. And then what he's going to do, look at this beautiful. Verse 3 again, picking it up here. A bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Isn't it fabulous? Now, he doesn't get discouraged. He won't fail. Now, I mean, the servant is gentle, right? There he is. He's gently working with the bruised reed. He's gently bending over the smoking flax. Oh, he's gentle, but he's not weak. Don't you ever confuse weakness with gentleness. Isn't it beautiful? In the book of Revelation, here the apostle John is caught into heaven, and on the one hand, there he sees Jesus Christ from the Lamb of God slain. It's from before the foundation. There is a lamb. Who's threatened by a lamb? Oh, good heavens. You know, I mean, you go to the farm. There's the, there's the cows, the big steer. Man, I'm threatened by them. The hogs, I don't want to get near them, man. They're, they're crazy. They'll run right out. You never know what's going on with them. Lamb? Sheep? Not just a sheep. I'm talking about a lamb, right? Who's threatened by them? Nobody's threatened by a lamb. You want to go up and pet it. If you can stand the smell. Nobody's threatened by a lamb. That's the gentleness of Christ. And then John turns away and he looks back and suddenly what's in front of him? The lion from the tribe of Judah. Whoa, the lion just changed to a lamb. That's Jesus Christ, right? Gentle as a lamb, but he's not weak. No, he's strong and mighty as a lion. He will bring forth justice for truth. There's no two ways about it. It will happen. And failure or discouragement is not going to stop the servant. Look at it there in verse 4. He will not fail nor be discouraged. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus never gets discouraged? Now, you might be discouraged tonight. Oh, you, you, you look over at your life. You look at ministry. You look at what God said before. You're discouraged. Jesus doesn't share your opinion. You know what? Sometimes I don't know why Jesus doesn't get discouraged. Good heavens, when you think about it, think about the job Jesus has to do. You've got, you got to run the church. You've got to bring God's eternal plan to pass. Wouldn't that discourage you if that was your job? And then think about, think about the obstacles he has to overcome. Now, you think you deal with the devil? Think about Jesus. Think about all the dead. Think about the proud, hard hearts of man that he has to overcome. You think about the job he has to do. You think about the obstacles he has to overcome. And then you really want to get discouraged? Think about the tools he has to work with. Man, that's us. Wouldn't that discourage you? I mean, you look at, oh, man. You know, anybody who's ever led people in any capacity, at times, goes through what I call the I'm surrounded by idiots syndrome. <laughs> you just, you, can't anybody do anything right? I'm so, if anybody had the right to say it, wouldn't it be Jesus? 
Wouldn't Jesus call out from heaven? I can't get anything done. I'm surrounded by this. He's never said that once, friends. He doesn't fail. He doesn't get discouraged. Oh, whatever reason for discouragement you think you might have, Jesus has had it a thousandfold. But he doesn't get discouraged. Why? He's got all power and all authority. And can I share something with you precious here? Where it says in verse 4, he will not fail. That is the same word as in verse 3 where it says a smoking flax. It says he's not going to smoke. And and then it goes on, it says, nor be discouraged. That's the same word as in bruised. In other words, Jesus is not the smoking flax. He's not the bruised reed. That's why he can give you his strength. There's no bruises about him. He's no mere smoking flax. He can do the plan of redemption because he's free from the weaknesses and the failures of his people. He doesn't have any flaws or blemishes. He's perfect, majestic in his strength. And so he's going to do it. He's going to fulfill the work. Look at the end of verse 4. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. And then the Lord goes on. Look at it. He's going to talk about the promise of his servant here in verse 5. He says, thus says, the God, says, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. He says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will give you, excuse me, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, to those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. The Lord's speaking to his servant, he's speaking to Jesus, the Messiah. And he says, listen, the, 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 I'm going to tell you what your ministry is going to be like. This is a, a prophetic view into the ministry of Jesus Christ as he walked this earth. And you know, it, it's such a powerful picture. The Lord has to confirm it with his word. You know, when, when somebody gives you a pretty bold promise, you, you want to know something about them, right? Somebody comes up to you on the street and they say, I'm going to give you a million dollars. Well, great. You want to know, okay, are you a fabulously wealthy man or did you just escape from a mental institution? It would make a difference, right, if you knew one or the other. You want to know something about the person who made the promise, right? Well, it's a pretty big promise God's making. So he says, let me tell you who I am. Let me fill you in on this. He says, first of all, thus says God, the Lord, verse 5, who created the heavens and stretched them out. You want to know who I am? You want to do a credit check on me, God says? Right? You want to go into a promise with somebody. You make a promise with the bank, right? Say, okay, Mr. Bank, you give me some money to buy my house and I'll pay you back. The man says, how am I going to know you're going to pay it back? He said, do a credit check on me. I'll find out your background. I'll find out who you are. I'll find out your record. That'll know, tell me whether or not you're reliable, right? You want to do a credit check on God? Here it is right now. First of all, look up. Look up, because he says, verse 5, who created the heavens and stretched them out. You want to see God's power, God's majesty? Just look up. Look at the sky. Look at the stars. Look at the planets. Could you do that? No. That's on God's resume. He did it. Is that not enough? Then fine, then look down. Verse 5, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it. Look all around the earth. He did that too. There it is, right on his resume. Created the heavens. Next it, created the earth. 
There it is. You can trust him. He's got the power to do it. And finally, you want to know? Then look in a mirror. Look at it there. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Go look in the mirror if you want to get a credit check from God. Say, oh, okay. You're the one. You did it. The God who did such great things can fulfill his promises about the servant. And here's the promise. Look at it here, verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. What a precious promise from the Lord God to the servant, Jesus Christ. I can't prove it empirically, but you just know in your soul that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when he lived on this earth, read passages like Isaiah chapter 42, and it strengthened his heart so much. Can you imagine Jesus in another discouraging time in, in ministry? And instead of giving in to discouragement, because it says there, he will not fail nor be discouraged, but surely he was tempted to discouragement, was he not? I mean, you lived with the apostles. Wouldn't you be tempted to discouragement? There he is. He's tempted to discouragement again. He opens up his scroll to Isaiah 42. Wouldn't that strengthen him? Wouldn't you take that promise from the Lord? Oh, thank you, Lord. Here it is. You say it right here. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. God says to, to his son, Jesus, because there was nothing unholy or unrighteous in my calling, you can be confident that my calling would be fulfilled. I'll hold your hand. I'm with you always. I'm holding your hand all the time. I'll keep you, it says right there. I'll give you as a covenant to the people. You'll fulfill the purpose I have for you. And look at what you're going to do. Verse 7, you're going to open blind eyes. You're going to bring out prisoners from the prison. God says to his servant, I'm going to use you to do miraculous works of restoration and healing, both physically and spiritually. You're going to be used to bring sight and freedom to many. Oh, now Jesus would read that. Yes, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for this precious food, for this precious promise. Here's my question. Are those promises just for Jesus, or are they for us also? Well, we have to say that primarily they're directed to the servant, Jesus Christ. But you know what? Jesus said something precious about his Father. When Jesus was praying in John 17 in this marvelous prayer to his Father, he prayed to his Father and he said, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. The same way that the Father sent the Son, that's how he sends us. So I say, we have a ground for claiming some of this in the promise, don't we? Don't we have the ground? Couldn't the Lord say to you tonight, I called you in righteousness, I'll hold your hand, I will keep you, I'll give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, I'm going to use you to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the prison? You can trust in it. Oh, no, you say, no, that's too much, that's too big, that's, that's just for some elite troops in God's service. Why? Why? Why not you? Is there a different Jesus in them than there is in you? What they, they get the, the grade A Jesus and you get like the, the grade, you know, the, the grade C Jesus? What? Is, is that what it is? Different Holy Spirit in them than there is in you. And you say, well, no, they, they just have more of Jesus. Well, if that is true, then why? Have they just sought that? Have they just trusted God for more of him? Then it's open to you too. You just come right in. So much the Lord loves you. So much the Lord wants to use you. And to give the assurance here, look at it, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. That's it. That's all there is to it. 
And then he says there at verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I'll tell you. I master everything. I've got the past. I've got the future. It's all under control. Now listen, if God's the Lord over the past, that's the former things. And if he's Lord over the latter things, the things that, that he's going to declare before they spring forth, if he's got the end wired and the, the, the beginning wired, I think he's got everything in between too, don't you? And we can trust him and trust his promise. Now look at the work of the Lord's servant here in verse 10. This is the reaction that we have when we see God's work, we say. Sing to the Lord a new song. And his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to sea and all that's in it. You coastlands and you inhabitants of them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Sing to the Lord. Doesn't that sound like a psalm? That's because it's a song of praise. You know, who the servant is, what he does, it's so glorious. It has to bring out a new song of praise. I'll tell you, if you've never had the feeling that you just have to praise God, that like something is going to go wrong in you if you don't praise God, there's just so much gratitude, so much thanksgiving, that you just feel you have to thank Him, you have to praise Him. If you never felt that, then God has a lot more for you than you've ever experienced in your life. That's how Isaiah says we feel in light of this ministry of the servant. You just sing to the Lord a new song, and everybody, you coastlands, you inhabitants of them, everybody, everybody who's been touched by the work of the servant. If your life has been touched by the work of Jesus Christ, you've got reason to sing tonight. You've got reason to praise him, reason to pour it out before him. And he goes on, look at it here, verse 13. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man, He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. I will lay waste the mountains and the hills and dry up their vegetation. And I will make the rivers coastlands and I will dry up the pools. That's very interesting. Very obviously, in verses 1 through 9, there's a beautiful description of Jesus in his first coming, in his earthly ministry, and his character and the nature of it, right? And then you have in verses 10, 11, and 12, a beautiful parentheses of praise. Thank you, Jesus, for your great work. And then now, starting in verse 13, the focus shifts again. Now we're not looking at the servant in his first coming, Now we're looking at his triumphant return in the second coming. Look at it. What does he say? He says, the Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. This day of praise is a day of victory for the Lord over all false gods. He's going to prevail against his enemies. And the Lord does this work of judgment with energy. Did you see all these phrases in here? Verses 14, 15, or 13, 14, and 15, where he says, he'll stir up his zeal like a man of war. You ever seen those old movies where you got the, you know, the warriors, you know, the brave heart kind of thing, you know, and you got all these crazily painted warriors, you know, and what do they do when they, they rush at each other? They cry the most awesome, frightening cry you can think of. You know, it's just this yell of war. That's what the Lord's saying here. He's just giving out the war cry here, letting it bellow forth. And if that's not enough, look at this. Says, I will cry like a woman in labor. Now, that's a powerful picture, isn't it? 
Ladies, you may know that personally. Men, you may know it by being in there and the, uh, and the uh, delivery room. Wow, that's a powerful picture. I, I can tell you firsthand. Crying out like a woman in labor, that isn't passive or dispassionate. When God brings his judgment, he does it with zeal. I want you to see the contrast. You know how you can, you know, this is different from the, from the, the first coming that was described before? Look at verse 2, where he says in verse 2, he will not cry out nor raise his voice, right? That was Jesus in his first coming. Meek, gentle, mild. Not going to be like that way, the second coming. Look at his description of the second coming. Verse 13, the Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out. Yes, shout aloud. See the difference? Second coming will be loud, demonstrative. You know, the, the rulers and the shakers of this earth, by and large, missed Jesus at his first coming. But the highest official that he ever related to was a guy named Pontius Pilate, who was a Roman governor. You know, kind of a flunky given to manage a distant outpost of the Roman Empire, what they called Palestine. The real movers and shakers of the world lived in places like Rome, Alexandria, Jerusalem, Judea. That's like the backwaters of the world. And so some you know, petty ruler, not a drop of royal blood in his vein, Pontius Pilate. Guy was a professional soldier. Rulers and the leaders. Do you, you think Caesar, Augustus, Caesar Tiberius, the days of Jesus, do you think they knew who he was? No. It's not going to be like that way the second coming. You want publicity. You know, Mario, how about every eye shall see him? See, Jesus is saving the, the publicity push for the last coming, the second coming. That's what that's all about. Everybody's going to know on that one. There's not going to be a doubt about it. It's going to come with power and glory and authority. And no obstacle will get in the way. Look at it here, verse 16. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. Now lead them in paths they have not known. I will make the darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall greatly be ashamed who trust in carved images, who say to the molded images, you are our gods. No, no obstacle, no false god, no mountain, no river, nothing. And nothing's going to stop him. Even the blindness of others will not prevent his plan. No, instead the deaf and the blind... Look how they come to the servant. Verse 18. Hear you deaf, and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is my messenger whom I send. Who is blind as he's who's perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant? What is he talking about? You know what he's doing beginning at verse 18? He's applying the truth that he's covered before. Here's the servant coming, meek and lowly in the first coming, right? He wants to touch your life and love you. And there you are, you're the bruised reed, you're the smoking flax, and here's a servant. Will that minister to you? I hope so. But if it won't, here's the mighty warrior coming. No obstacle in his way. Everybody sees it. Does that minister in your heart and, and make your heart turn to the Lord? Okay, if the first one doesn't, and the second one does it, you're blind. You're deaf. The Lord speaks to you tonight, and he says, look, hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Who's blind but my servant? Now, he's not talking about the servant when he's talking about that. He's saying, I can't believe that my people are blind. 
that the people who are supposed to be my servants are blind, that they're deaf, that my messenger, they're deaf. It's almost as if God said, what's up with that? How can you be my servant if you're blind? How can you be my messenger if you're deaf? A blind man's going to have trouble being a good servant. A a deaf man's going to have trouble being a good messenger. And look at the result here, verse 20. Seeing many things, but you do not observe. Oh, it all passes before your eyes, but you don't observe any of it. Now, I could say there's two ways to be blind, right? You could be actually blind where, you, you know, there, there's some kind of physical damage and you actually can't see anything. It's all darkness. Or, or you can be blind in the way that you just, everything passes, but you don't, just don't pay attention to anything, right? It's not paying attention to anything. That's the kind of blindness that the Lord's speaking about right here. You see many things, but you do not observe. Friends, it's that which your walk with the Lord is like. The love of God, his faithfulness, his goodness, his work in your life, his calling, the ministry he's given you, the the mission that he's called you to, all these things, they just kind of pass before your eyes and you don't even see it. The Lord keeps passing it before your eyes, but you don't see it. Or how about this? Opening the ears, but he does not hear. Same thing's true with the hearing, right? All this noise is going on, but you're just not tuned into it. It's just all like static. God, open our eyes. You can see tonight, right? The the Lord's given you sight, but are you observing? You can hear things are going on spiritually, but are you tuning in? Are you focusing? Look at it here in verse 21. Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. God's going to defend his justice going to defend his honor. But look at what he says when he looks at his people, verse 22. But this is a people robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes, and they're hidden in prison houses for their prey, and no one delivers for plunder, and no one says restore. God looks at his people, and they're robbed, and they're plundered. They're ripped off. Well, no wonder. Who's easier to steal something from than a blind or a deaf man, right? I mean, somebody comes and picks your pockets. You don't even feel it. You don't even see it. You're robbed. You're plundered. You're living in fear. You're one of his people, but here you are. And God looks at nobody's even restoring them. Now, in a sense, you you sense the Lord's compassion towards that servant, right? He's sorry for them, right? But you notice here in verse 23, who among you will give ear to this? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Okay, well, who did this, right? Who who allowed these blind and deaf to be ripped off? Look at it here, it's heavy. Verse 24, was it not the Lord? He against whom we sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his law. Therefore, he has poured out on him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle. It has set him on fire all around, yet he did not know. It burned him, yet he did not take it to heart. It's almost like you can see the tears running down the face of God. As he says to his people, you know, you were blind, you were deaf, you wouldn't listen. I allowed affliction to come your way, to wake you up, to, to snap you into sensibility. You know how it is when, when our bodies are in danger and, and adrenaline kicks in and adrenaline heightens all your senses. 
It, it heightens all your sensibilities. There are, and some people, sometimes in a time of crisis, they say, everything slowed down. I was able to perceive and see. You know, you know what that is? That's a physiological reaction. That's adrenaline kicking into your body. That, that's what the Lord wants to happen in your life spiritually when a crisis comes. He wants that, if you will, spiritual adrenaline to kick in and enable you to perceive and see things that you weren't seeing before because you were blind and deaf. It was there before, but you weren't observing it. But now you see it. And tragically, for some people, their spiritual adrenaline system's all messed up. It's just not kicking in anymore. Maybe they become deadened to it. Maybe they've just, and it's not happening. You can just see almost the, the tears rolling down the face of God. He allowed this affliction to come in, but the people aren't responding to it. What's going to happen? And if you look at this picture at the end of verse 25, it says, set him on fire all around, yet he did not know. As if you're in a burning house. The house is on fire. It's becoming engulfed in flame. And there you are. You're just, you know, eating your cereal there in the, in the house. What fire? What? What are you talking about? Something wrong? Something going on? Look at what it says. And, and it burned him. He did not take it to heart. What an amazing contrast, isn't it? You know, I think that if we don't, turn our hearts to the Lord and, and heighten our hearing and focus our sight towards Him. There's two kinds of fire we can experience. You know, the, the, the fire that the Lord wants to bring is the fire that takes that, that smoldering, smoking wick and feeds it with oil and blows it into a fanning flame and it brings light, warmth, cheer to everything. You harden your heart against that God. Says, well, let me get through. Let me get through. Let me get through. Friends, no. That fire is just going to burn, and you'll get burned by it. Whenever God sends the fire of his correction, we want it to burn away the sin and the impurity in our life. But, you know, sometimes fire, sometimes fire just makes things blacker and harder. Don't let the fire of God's correction do that. Don't let it make you blacker and harder. No one said, see, the Lord standing over you and respond to his loving, gentle touch. That's how the Lord wants to come to you tonight. You bruised reed, you smoking flax. His love is right there towards you. May God give us soft hearts to respond to his work, to respond to that gentle breeze of his blowing upon our our smoking flax, so that we can respond to his work early on. That's exactly what we should pray for. Lord God, give us soft, tender hearts before you tonight. We ask, Lord, that you'd have forgiveness and mercy upon us for every time that we've hardened ourselves against you. We cry out to you tonight, Lord, and say, break up the fallow ground. Do your work of plowing in us, Lord, if if the ground that's being plowed could, could talk, it would cry out and say, the plow, it hurts. Lord, we need you to do it in us. And Father, help us to respond to the gentle way that you want to deal with us. Oh Lord, you're such a beautiful servant to us, but help us to respond to you, Lord, not as if you're our servant, but as if you're our master. Because you are. You are our Lord. Lord, touch and strengthen hearts and lives for you tonight. 
Let us go our way here strengthened in the work that you want us to do. In Jesus' name.